0: The British Podcast Awards are now on and Distinct Nostalgia needs your help. The power to crown the next Listener's Choice Award is in your hands. Your support will help Distinct by MIM bring even more great programmes to you. Vote now at britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and search for Distinct Nostalgia. Thank you for your support.
1: Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by MIM.
2: Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home.
1: Corrie is 60 years old in December, and for 26 years of those six decades, Thelma Barlow played the ever-indecisive, shy and timid Mavis. Her double acts, first with Rita, played by Barbara Knox in The Cabin, and later with Derek, played by Peter Baldwin, are the stuff of soap legend. So today we're proud to bring you an exclusive interview with Coronation Street Royalty. Thelma's been recalling her years in the world's longest running drama serial with MIM's Ashley Byrne. Where it'll all lead, I don't really know. Enjoy.
3: So going all the way back, you arrived mm-hmm. in Corrie, I think initially, for a short period in the very early 70s. Is, is, is that right? That's,
2: and I only went in for one episode and... Uh... That was sort of out of the blue because I, I was living in Scotland at the time. And up till that point, I'd done 15 years pretty well constantly in, in lovely reps up and down the country. Some of the best three-weekly reps. I was so lucky to be working there. So I hadn't done very much television, but one of the casting directors from the street obviously saw me doing something in Liverpool, I came down to do a couple of plays in Liverpool, came escaped from Scotland because um, I had a bad time of nationalism up there. And so it, they weren't welcoming English actors or English anybody's and although I did get some work it was thin on the ground and uh, you know I've been working pretty constantly so it was a bit hard and uh, I came down to Liverpool and did those plays and eventually out of that came the offer for Coronation Street.
3: And can you remember what your initial role was in Coronation Street
2: what the storyline was? Yes I can very very well I've still got the episode I was there to be a friend of Emily's I think we worked together in the office at the factory and uh, she was becoming engaged and i was invited to the engagement party and i would just think i asked for an orange juice or something very maybe see and Ina Sharper said oh come on have a proper drink and so i had two rather strong drinks and got a bit woozy and uh, i explained that you know she had uh, emily was the one getting engaged and I was actually, I think I was, I was older or younger than her, but I was very peeved about it, or maybe it was very peeved, because she thought she should have got engaged first. And uh, then a year later, I was off back for the wedding of Emily, and at that point, I had an exchange with Jerry Booth, Graham Haberfield, who played Jerry. And at the reception, we had a little sort of exchange of words, and I think somebody in the, in the office, one of the writers or directors, thought, "Oh, that would be a good union." So they then asked if I would go back and do some more. Said, almost six months later, to put in this storyline, I think Jerry must have been due for a bit of romance. <laughs> they thought, "Oh, there's somebody as shy as Jerry Booth, maybe." So we'll we'll put them together. That should be fun. Then I was in it for all those years.
3: And the wedding that Emily was having must have been the wedding to Ernest Bishop, was it? Yes, it was. Who, of course, very dramatically was killed off.
2: Yes, it's always sad when they decide to kill somebody off. <laughs> it is because you know you've got to know them well, and it is sort of part of the. I suppose everybody has spoken to about it has to talk about the family. It was the same in repertory. When you're together over some time, you get to be very close to each other because you are working together to an end, as families do, and you had to, you, you sort of had to get on a bit in this close work that we do, you know, emotional work. And eventually you realize that you're all absolutely reliant on one another, that somebody is going to say the words they should and you're going to answer it as <laughs> You're standing there with egg on your face if you don't do it. Right. Uh, it it's a great uh, share of responsibility, which was part of the lovely teamwork you know, that comes in acting.
3: We'll talk about Mavis in a moment when she came in full time, but in those early episodes where you were just in it for a short period, what, you know, Mavis generally overall was quite sh- a shy mm. character, wasn't mm-hmm. she? Was she originally quite shy in those early episodes?
2: She was terrified. Um, and she wasn't I was <laughs> no I mean she she wasn't a social butterfly at all she wasn't used to going to parties and, and always on her own of course but she she didn't have the confidence that most of the women in the street did you know that it, it was sort of very prominently full of very strong women and uh, there was this little massive creature came in among them she wouldn't say boo to a goose so it was yeah, She she was very nervous. So was I because they, they were already. I mean, they'd been running twelve years by then, and these people. Yes, they were actors, just as all the others one worked with. But they had such a sort of standing in the public eye. You know, it was the first one of its kind in this country, and and they were adored. In fact, when I think it was when I just started going into the three month contract, it was a, there was a festival in. Manchester, and they uh, they had built a I think it was an open top bus I'm not sure, but a big double decker, and they had painted it to look like the street houses, and they asked us if, if we'd go on Thursday morning which was a precious morning of the week for most of us then. So a lot of people said, oh, no, I can't. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, I've made arrangements. So I, I said, well, nobody will know who I am, really, but if it had been on the face of the window, I, I'll come along and do it. And it was, oh, my goodness. I I sat upstairs and looked down at these crowded streets. You know, there were all sorts of floats and, and people. It was a big carnival thing. And I looked down, and there were these upturned faces looking up with absolute adoration, just like a, a, a painting, a broidel painting, just, just looking up at their icons, you know, and they were just cheering and shouting, oh, Ina, and, oh, you know, and all the names. And you thought, gosh, what a responsibility it is to be in a show like this. I'd never experienced anything like that before. And you know, it was just something that obviously they captured the nation's hearts and had become like family already. It had been running 12 years by then. Because then I realized later, we are in people's homes. And then it was twice a week, I think, Wednesday and Friday. But then Monday, Wednesday and Friday it became. And then eventually it's grown to most nights of every week and weekends. But... We're closer to many people. They see us in that program. More often, they see their own families. And very often, at much closer range, you know, you get a close-up. And how often do we see our families' face that near uh, and look into their eyes so clearly and see what's going on? (laughs) It matters a lot. So you know, it, it is a big responsibility—not only to your fellow actors and, and the company, but to your, but to the public because uh, they they mattered to them. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's
3: true, isn't it? You know, I've been a Coronation Street fan all my life, and um, when Nan Kirkbride died a few years ago, it was it was devastating because I always I always thought of, bizarrely I thought of of, of Deirdre as, as as Auntie Deirdre, because the connection yes. all the time, you know.
2: It it showed, but eventually, I mean, nobody tells you how to. Cope with the public demonstration of of affection, and you know, somebody to just grab you in the street and kiss you and hug you, and and, oh my goodness me, who is this person? (laughs) So you just had to get used to that because you know people were moved emotionally to uh, feeling attached. They were part of their family. Indeed. Now, of
3: course, as you say, you arrived at quite a crucial point in the sense that there were there were new people coming in but there were some of these iconic characters that, that were still there from the beginning how was that for you working with some of these sort of huge stars
2: terrifying i mean, I mean it's always like the school first day at school when when you go to join a new company you know, and well, never well, i never lost that of Feeling new girl and you. Um, but to go into that, I hadn't, because I'd been working in the theatre so much, I hadn't really watched it, because obviously it was in on stage when it was on, and there wasn't recording or anything like that then. But I mean, one knew of the sort of huge claim that they had. And uh, I mean, there's story goes around the profession, but it, it did actually happen to me. That, Everywhere we sat, there was an, and someone else new in the cast that day, and uh, we didn't know where we should go. I mean, there were two green rooms, but nobody invited us into this, the, either of the green rooms. So we sat about in rehearsal with our bags and scripts, and <laughs> everywhere we went seemed to be part of the set. They were coming to do us scenes and move us on. And eventually we ended up in one corner, and that seemed fine. And then Doris Speed came in, Um, Oh, about an hour we'd been there, and uh, she obviously had later scenes, and she came in and walked right up to our corner and said, good morning, and put her back down, and then she went off to talk to someone else and came back about 10 minutes later and very nicely said, do you think I could have my seat now, love? (laughs) Said, You know, you find a place where you can learn your lines and this is where I can do it, So, if you don't mind. So we moved off again. And, I mean, she couldn't have done it more sweetly, but one had heard that they were a bit like that, you know, that they had their own chairs and so on and so forth. And it was a bit like that. These were people who had been in weekly rep for years and years and some of them had been in the theater on not even plays but even you know, a sort of um, sketch shows and musical theater and all sorts of things and so suddenly to find this oh, Great adoration from the public really gone to the heads a bit of some of them, but Doris came back later and I said "Look, "I'm sorry I have to move you on, but it is difficult sometimes when you, you just know where you are in the rehearsal room, if you can just find your own chair and she was exceedingly gracious about it, and I loved it a bit.
3: she was awesome. And you had other people of course, who'd been in it for a long time, and I've heard little stories about how they. Sort of were a little bit like their characters in a way. You have people like uh, Jack Howarth who played uh, Albert Tatlock, who was quite grumpy on on set, on on, on, on
2: on the programme,
3: and could be grumpy in real life as well. I gather.
2: Yes, he was. He was dear, really. But you know, he was quite old by the time I went into it, and. It's not easy for an old person to get up, get ready, get their head in gear, learn, and learn the lines, probably sitting up last night, night before, learning lines. And then he's got to get all dressed and ready, have his breakfast and get down. Those sort of things are hard when you're quite old, you know. It's not bouncing out. And Jack, was in, it was interesting because I think he'd done quite a lot of, Theatre. I don't know whether he did sketches or if he had another act, but he had. He said you could come to Manchester for, and live here for nearly a year, and go to all the theatres in and around, like Bolton, Bury, Rochdale, you know, and you could spend the whole year going around doing your act because there were so many theatres in all the little towns around. But he found a nice job in his old age with Coronation Street. <laughs> But yeah, she was grumpy, now. I don't know if anybody has told you about the the cake thing. Well, it, we used to have the to save time, so that we we didn't have to go down to the canteen. They sent us up a lady with a trolley of cakes and tea and coffee, and uh, and 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 every day, whatever we were doing in the middle of a scene, as soon as he heard yeah, the door and the rattle of the trolley. He was making a bee line for it. And <laughs> he used to go and pick up cream cakes, the creamiest of cakes he seemed to choose, and stuff them in his pockets. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> and uh, I, mean, I think he and his wife stays at, at the Midland, and they used to... Um, I probably had those with a cup of coffee in the evening. And um, uh, so one day, that Neville Boswell and Graham Haverfield who were just young lads, of course. They said, uh, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Go up to Jack and say, how are you, Jack? And I'll slap him on the side and <laughs> his pockets are full of cream cakes. <laughs> Jack didn't think that was anything. <laughs> he,
3: he seems like he was a, definitely a character. And of course, there were lots of other characters in, in the show as well. And, and, and they'd all been around for a long time, hadn't they? Long before Coronation Street in the acting world.
2: They'd slogged away all their lives in theatre being paid twopence halfpenny, And suddenly they had found, you know, a job that, I mean, the untold wealth from Tottenham Hapenay to whatever. I, don't, I was paid £60 a week, I know, when I went into Coronation Street. £60 an episode, I mean, I'm sorry. And that was the equity minimum.
3: It's funny that you should mention the Midland Hotel, though. And it's obviously got a reputation as, as a place where actors and people have gone for over many years it certainly became a a popular venue with coronation street people didn't it
2: yes i think so but i mean most of them went home see there were northern people and they lived in the north doris lived still lived in manchester Jack, Jack would stay at the middle and I don't know Margot Bryant I'm not sure where she stayed but I think Vi Carson went home mostly she was living at somewhere like Cleveley's I think that must have been extraordinary for them because you know they suddenly had found this new life they could live at home they weren't out the road all the time living in digs and they were lovely in the green room because they were talking about the old times you know and Vi was she was a well, she was a bit grand, but she sort of was that sort of person. She was a very regal sort of person, very dignified and very principled and quite religious. Because we were singing <coughs> hymns in the green room one day, um, just you know, quietly singing, more raucously, and raucous, really. and, um, and she said at the end of what we finished one hymn, and she said. Well, at least you girls know something about religion. <laughs> it's a very haughty boy, I think She thought we were all lost. But of soul, course there was really. there, was a,
3: there was the, the thing about them as well, that these ladies were, you know, not just on the street, but outside they would be quite glamorous. I mean, Pat Phoenix was quite a glamorous lady, wasn't she? She, you know, she dressed up a lot, as it were.
2: <laughs> oh, very much so. In fact, I think she'd stopped by the time I got, but she'd had a phase of, Arriving, you know, in as Robin Hood one day and Cleopatra another. I think she, she, she oh, what courage though? Isn't that brilliant to to dare to do things like that? I mean, she she was a very nice woman. I mean, she had. A, a, I mean, she. I think one or two had thought of themselves rather like the film stars of the past. Joan Crawfords and Beth Davies, and I think they got the idea of you know this is how they behave and this is how they dress, and they always look wonderful and Pat, I mean all the ladies made huge efforts to look good coming to rehearsal and into the studio. They never arrived looking a mess um I think that's that was very important to them to 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 look like. What everybody thought of it. They could afford to buy nice clothes and beautiful shoes and handbags, so they they certainly knew how to do it. I remember seeing a very old, very famous and very good actress once in London. Um, oh, before, long before the streets, it was, I was new, newly into the business, and it was Gladys Cooper. And i remembered seeing photographs in newspapers and film magazines and theatre thing, and my mother held her in great regard, and she was just going into the theatre to a matinee one day, and I was in Berwick Market buying vegetables as cheap as I could because I didn't have any money, and so I said, oh, oh she's Gladys Cooper, and she was wearing a old mac right down almost to her ankles, but on her ankles she had a tiny gold chain and some really grubby-looking shoes. And well, I was so disappointed. And I think that was probably why our ladies, you know, and a lot of actors at the time in London particularly, but they felt they had some certain sort of status. And did that put on
3: pressure on you as a as a young woman arriving in the street? Did you feel as though <laughs> you needed to dress up to arrive at the, at the programme?
2: Well, well, uh, no, I mean, I, I don't think I'd ever gone around looking a tub of rubbish, but... Um, but I, I, you know, I would wear jeans and things like that. I didn't feel I had to put on the sort of expensive shoes. and things. No, because the younger end of, of the cast were, you know, much more casual, but we weren't <laughs> wearing hats.
0: Distinct drama, fresh and original. Mr Fendon, I assure you that I have not come here to murder you however tempted I may be. A terse 40-minute drama, set in a US correctional facility. Oh, I see. You wish to be
1: sent to the electric chair.
0: Yeah. Oh, oh, no, 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 Mr. Fenton. That would not do at all. Starring the award-winning Joe Sims. In short, Mr. Fenton, you are what may be regarded as disposable humanity...
1: Don't you dare think that I started all of this out of political ambition. Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Daniels, I do think that. And to show you that there is such a thing as redemption. To show you that you
0: are educable and have potential. Show me? Show me, Mr. Daniels? I think you are done show me my potential. As we forgive them. Available now. To place yourself in the centre of a dream doesn't make it a bad one. And this dream, my dream, in whatever depths of despair it may have been born, has become the start of something real. Listen at distinctnostalgia.com or search for Distinct Drama wherever you get your podcasts.
3: What we need to talk about really is the fact that your your uh, arrival sparked the beginning of probably one of the most famous and most enduring partnerships in um, Coronation Street, which was between you and Rita, of course, between Mavis and Rita.
2: Yes, we always counted ourselves tremendously fortunate because, um, I mean, Rita, I mean, total chalk and cheese, weren't they, Mavis and Rita, but um, as actors, we got on, we just respected each other, you know, it was lovely to work with somebody who was so um, good and conscientious and professional. And so, you know, we just ticked off together really well. And I mean, she, she, uh, Barbara was very glamorous and, and was playing glamorous in the role, whereas I was playing Dowdy. Um, but it was, it was super, and we had the same sense of humor. And, and we would get the script someday and say, oh, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> but mostly, I mean, we're very, very good writers. And uh, John Stevenson always wrote extremely well for Rita and Mavis. He was a very good writer anyway and great humor. But some of the writers would have the characters that they wrote well for, better than others. And, and, uh, And Les Duxbury, I think, the name that I think, I don't have I haven't heard of him for years, but Les I think created the character of Mavis, I think he was one of the first to write for her, but it, it, you just knew when you got some name on the script, oh it's going to be good this week for us.
3: Did, how did it start then, in terms of, did Mavis go for a job at the cabin or something? Is that She a did,
2: story? she did, that's how they brought her into the street as a fairly regular to begin with. And, I um, mean, she went for a job to assist Rita in the cabin and was terrified, of course, and uh, got hiccups during the interview. <laughs> of course she did. <laughs> she uh, she just, got, got, just got into saying who she was and what she'd come before, and, and she started to hiccup, which made her even more embarrassed and uh, amused Rita, I think, at the time. But she got the job. And uh, that little cabin was was,
3: was Well a lot I of did. your a lot of your role for a long time was you and basically you and Rita I mean you could have you could have done a separate programme on just you and Rita in the cabin, to be honest. I mean just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just your, <laughs> your, <laughs> your your reactions your 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 reactions that. to things were fantastic. But what was brilliant about it, I think, was the way in which Rita's character would spend her time winding uh, your character up,
2: basically. Oh, yeah. Oh yes, she knew how to do that, didn't she? And you know, to begin with, Mavis was the sort of uh, whipping boy in a way for, for others. The other women were all so strong, you know. And there was this little mouse, and you can, you know, you, you know, it's it's sort of easy to have her dangling on a string, wondering if she's being had or not. And <laughs> so, but Rita was brilliant at that. She could. Uh, But, you know, they went through a lot together through the years as well. You know, all those years, they went through bad times and good times. And certainly Rita had a lot of things happening to her, didn't she? I mean, all her lovers and husbands and things. (laughs) You know, you knew it would be lovely for a while and then it would all go wrong and then you would all be sort of comforting. But they did, and I think friendships can be like that. You, You can... Be totally different people or from different backgrounds.
3: On the serious side, Mavis would often sort of give a give a you know a, a polite warning or a you know she'd she'd warn Rita of things that weren't quite right, wouldn't she? She you know. Yes.
2: <laughs> well, the thing about Mavis, she was I think she'd been brought up by very Victorian parents. I think they hadn't moved with the times. And, uh, and indeed, I was. You know, my mum was brought up by true Victorians and. And that there was this sort of hangover from that, um, and I think she she was just brought up to be very proper indeed, uh, but she was became very highly principled, and and she was, uh, you know, again that was sort of oh, I can't say I can't say Rita wasn't highly principled, but she they were so different, they were, the principles were different. Then, yes, yeah, she would. She she would try to. Try to warn me. Rita would say, "Well, what sort of experience of life have you had, for goodness' sake, to be giving me advice?" But uh, no, it, it was wonderful. We've just lived through so many different times together, and always, always, you know, we, we might, she might take the Mickey out of maybe a lot, but she was, she would always be supportive, like families are, you know, against outside interference, or if she thought Mavis was being stupid, she would tell him no. But of
3: course, because Mavis <laughs> carried on having a friendship, of course, with another lady on the street who was a little bit timid, and that, of
2: course, was Emily. Oh, yes, they, they were always friends, but there were degrees. I mean, Emily was uh, was reserved rather than shy, I think, wasn't she? She was... Uh, And had no confidence for, well, she she gained it because she learned to live with these people who, you know, who had a totally different view on life from herself. And she learned to stand up for herself in the end. And then when she married Derek, of course, he was another ditherer. And so she had to get more backbone.
3: (laughs) Now, one thing I always remember about my early days watching Coronation Street was when you all went, all the ladies went on a trip on holiday abroad. I think it was about 1977. Have <gasps> you watched the whole thing? <laughs> yes. Tell us about that. You know,
2: yes, of it. It was very odd. On that holiday, oh, it was super. It had, you know, such a nice time. Well, we did. We had a horrid time and a nice time. <laughs> but the thing was that they put us into a hotel where they were going to do the filming. But it was... It was not, it was, you know, just one that wasn't set up in any way to be pleasant to be in for us when we were off duty. It was so that we could relax and, and, you know, be quiet and so on. But um, we, it was one of those very, very busy places. But people were wonderful and, and they just said, you know, can you just go to that side of it? And all these people are going to have a nice, cool dip. They all moved, and they had to move into the shade and sit there for about an hour and a half or two hours while we were filming. But people are so good when there's filming going on, the, the public, I mean. However, they're that one, I know there Oh Beth Lynch and Betsy from the pub, and, um, oh, and Anne Ann Kirkbride was there, and Rita, of course, and Emily, I think that was the group.
3: And Hilda was there as well. Oh, and Hilda,
2: that's right, Hilda was there. Um, it, I was, yes, that it, it was a really good um, good script. It was a lot to pack into the time. And was, oh, I know we got up about 6 o'clock in the morning and oh, our makeup room was somewhere down in the bowels of the hotel and had the dreadful smell of drains and we couldn't get a cup of tea until about, eight o'clock it was you know those sort of things where you, you really need to be a bit <laughs> oh what because before you start work at that time in the morning you, you want to feel a bit costly, just, just a bit you know and the makeup those wonderful department in Granada and I'm still in touch with many of them um, they, they were the loveliest group of girls and they would they would really it was a, that hour in makeup was a good time I think it, and I think most actors would say that it, it just relaxes you and you can add chatter or keep quiet, whichever, and just get prepared for the performances. So they were lovely, lovely girls.
3: On the, hol- the holiday, of course, was the, was a, a culmination, I suppose, at the time, of the fact that people were often going away on package holidays. Oh, yeah, that yeah. Was... and the people and who
2: were in our hotel on, a, on package holidays, they seemed to be thrilled to bits to be there. <laughs> they didn't have told to move it left, right and centre. that <laughs> was their holiday. How dare we tell them where to go? <laughs> but then later, there was much later, we had some... Uh, An episode where we went to Blackpool. That was Mavis and Bette and Rita. Bet was hoping to get one of the guys interested, and there were two representatives, um, sales reps. And he, she, and Rita went for them, and Mavis got the boss man. (laughs) So had a rather nice time, purely innocent, of course.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what, what I remember about the the holiday though is, that, is there's a fa- there's a very famous picture of you all in your your bathing costumes, yes. Yes. which is we still still out there and it's quite uh, it's quite it's quite fun fun to see really just oh, see all, all the old. Oh. Uh, I mean, Doris Speeds there she was, yes, she was in it oh, as well. Yes,
2: Doris says, yeah. see, yeah. that is what was that is very sad. Um, my lovely neighbour here said she'd like to see my copy of This Is Your Life, which I did when I was in the street and just watching that and, and looking at that photograph which I've still got of everybody in the Mallorca and oh, there's hardly anyone left of all those people now. They've all gone.
3: You're right that, you know, yes, a lot of those people are gone now which is very sad and um, and one of the people who went far too, soon of course, was was, um, was Anne Kirkbride who played Deirdre. What was she like to work with?
2: Anne. Oh, she was lovely. She was very young when, you know, when she first came in. Very young, about 19 I think. And she was quite an emotional girl. She took things very deeply, you know, the good and the bad. She was, she was quite a high and a low. But um, no, she, was, she was a dear. She was and very loving. And um, she seemed to be able to learn the script really easily. We think she had a photographic mind. She just seemed to not have any trouble. <laughs> she read it and know it. You know, and everybody went, oh, I'm envious.
3: Now, of course, Anne became known for her big glasses. Every character becomes known and characterised and caricatured for something. Uh, one of the things you became known for, of course, was a catchphrase which um, wasn't actually created by you, was it? It was created by uh, the comedian uh, and actor Les Dennis. Um, tell us about that. He and. Oh,
2: what's his partner? Called? Dustin his partner? G. Dustin. Um, and they were doing panto in Leeds or Bradford somewhere near, and they said we were at some function and they came across to, um, to us and said uh, we're actually impersonating you on stage. We hope you don't mind. Could you, would you like to come and see us? And Liz Dawn, they were doing. Oh, Dustin was doing Liz, and Les Dennis did Mavis. And they said, oh, yes. And I don't know what happened, but I, I didn't go on the day that we were supposed to go. Liz did and said it was very good. And then, of course, saw Les on television doing Mavis. He was the best. A lot of people did Mavis, impersonated her, but Les was the best of all. And he that phrase he came was, I don't really know. Are you go, okay I don't really know. And I don't ever remember, I must have said it because it's a phase anybody might have said, isn't it? But um, from then on, it became Mac Davis's (laughs) catchphrase. And at the time, I mean, you'd have little schoolboys doing it and big lorries drawing up at lights and seeing, and then the hunky lorry driver would lean out and say, I don't really know. (laughs) So, yes, it became her uh, saying, I suppose you get asked to open things and do things, and P.A. when you're in the street. And if uh, I went, you know, into a sort of big arena of people, and because I don't particularly sound like Mavis, I would, you know, say, hello, nice to be here, da-da-da-da-da. And then as soon as I went into Mavis's voice, and I didn't really know, then, you know, they'd, oh, yes, <laughs> a great big cheer would go up. So, yes, it sort of signified her. (laughs) (laughs) You, of course,
3: decided to leave Coronation Street and you've done some fantastic things since then. But why did you decide to leave? I mean, I know you've been there 25 years or whatever
2: it was, but... I don't know, just the devil inside me that said you're either going to live and die in this if they keep asking you (laughs) to be in it, or you're going to go out into the big world and be a little fish in a big pool again and there was something that made me want to do it that's it dangerous but um, and I, I said I would go to leave, and the producer at the time said no you're not no I'm not going to leave. lose you and Rita from the cabin and so I said well he said there's you and Derek you know great team blah, blah. so I said oh, alright well I'll stay another year so I stayed another year and then I went and said no I'm going to leave this time and she said no you're not <laughs> I said Look, I am. And then and I was quite set that I would. And then I think it was my accountant who said, it would be better if you just do another year. So I was persuaded and stayed that. So really I had it in mind for two years to leave before I did. And then when they were going to four episodes a week, I said, no, I really don't want to work at that pace. Because Peter and Barbara Knox and Peter Baldwin, I mean, we were, we were all actors who liked to rehearse. And there was never time when, once you were called to the set to rehearse. So you had to do it, you know, in, in between times and, and you know, dressing room or green room. And I thought, well, four episodes, that's cutting the time down altogether. No. So I did. And it, to my dismay, when they could have written me out and killed me off, they wrote Peter out. Peter Baldwin. Now, Peter, it was thrilling when Peter came in because he was an actor I'd worked with in the theatre. We played husband and wife in the theatre, actually. The, the day he was in, I knew Mavis was having a new romance set, and the lovely director um, said, Oh, come with me. Come and meet your new boyfriend. You used to live with him. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> my- Catching up. I haven't. No, it can't. And and it was Peter. And when we were in rep in Exmouth, we fixed as a chair at the house. So that's what sort of solved that one. And when it was Peter, I was thrilled to bits because he's such a good actor. He was such a good actor and such a delightful man, sweet, kind, and very funny. And uh, so as to June Wyndham Davis, you who was the director, you really had me worried there. <laughs> But then it was Peter, and of course then he stayed for many, many years, and we had lovely, lovely times together, because we enjoyed working together and with Barbara, and um, he was devastated when he was written out, and I I was just so angry about it, because they could easily have, you know, written me out, and they needed good men, there were some good men, but they, they needed that sort of age group, you know, a good, strong actor but it really devastated him and he was so disappointed and that there was no reason i mean one couldn't think of any reason why that decision came about but he loved it because it, you know he was it, it was his family um and so he did rather well things afterwards but nothing like that you went on to do quite a lot a lot of people don't get much work after they've been so well known in that and then that sort of um, that changed, and then people were wanting what they call a name, you know pantos of course they want a name well they want several names, and uh, then they realized that yes they were it was a good box office draw but uh, before when I said I was leaving, I was having dinner with um Anne Reed and uh, Victoria Wood at. I hadn't really known Victoria. I think I'd met her once. And what we Anne arranged that we all had dinner together because I knew her very well. And um, from that, she then she wrote me into the dinner ladies. And she said, uh, cause I, I think at that dinner, I, I said, I really am going to leave. I've been trying to leave for two years, but I'm definitely leaving this year. And she was just putting these um, characters together for dinner ladies. And I think already she knew she was going to ask uh, Anne. And... Uh, so she put us together, which is another good union. Those two, Dory, Dolly, and Jean.
3: Yeah, no, d- definitely, it was a very, very, very good, and uh, and of course, you 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 ended up starring with Judy Dench in something.
2: Come on, I was in it, <laughs> so that was lovely. In Mrs. Henderson presents, and that was a lovely story about the lady who bought the windmill and. Uh, how it became so important during the war and everything it was a delightful story—and uh, Stephen Frears, who's a gorgeous man and um, an excellent director. He was uh, met me Well, I met went to him, meet him, and he said yes. And he said, "How do you feel about working with Judy Dench? It was to play her friend." And I said, "Well, I've only heard wonderful things about her." As, as a person and as an actor. And everything was, I thought she can't be this wonderful, but she was, <laughs> she, she was excellent. In the street, that was what was so interesting to me that i played, um, as I said, 15 years pretty constantly in the top reps. They were really the ones that everybody aspired to get to and I was so lucky to be part of that era. Um, and you can ask any actor, older actor, was the best part of their career, and nearly everyone would say repertory if they were in, in the top reps. And so you're playing all these different parts, classicals and modern and all sorts. And I just, I, don't, I didn't know if it was just lovely to be uh, with people who you know who had had that experience. And I think that the, you know the, the, those sort of people. You think, well, yes, they might be absolutely. Magnificent uh, uh, worldwide stars, worldwide, and yes, but at heart they are actors, and actors have a, a sort of—I don't know—it's almost like a thread of recognition that you can, you know the people who who can do it and the people <laughs> who can't, <laughs> and mostly the the best, the top. People, the very best actors are people who don't, aren't starry. They don't make a great fuss about it. They just get on with it.
3: What was the film you were in with Meryl Streep?
2: Oh, oh God, why do you ask me a question? I don't know. Um, oh, Florence Foster Jenkins. It's a lovely film as well. A wonderful film. It's Stephen Frears, again, directing. And uh, she was a lady who was left, she had a rather sad start to her life, but was left an enormous amount of money and uh, loved opera. And she wanted to be an operatic singer. She, she was a pianist and then an operatic singer. And so she put all her money into promoting opera in her hometown. And and then she decided she, she was trained by, well, the sort of top people who just took money and she had the most dreadful out of tune voice she couldn't sing at all and poor soul I don't know how she listened to herself and thought it was all right but it was you know and we used to laugh about it you know it was well known in the theater and you used to laugh if you heard her recording but when you've got to know of her and her life you had greater sympathy with her she just adored the music scene and Obviously, was encouraged by charlatans <laughs> who took her money to train her and uh, and let her sing. And she booked herself into Carnegie Hall and oh, disaster! And yet she was she was just doing her best, and she was a very kind. So, so um, this was her film, and Meryl Streep was gorgeous, it behaved impeccably, wonderful example of how to behave as a star um and she she was just brilliant she was sort of very friendly she was absolutely delightful to me and you know i thought she probably hadn't even noticed me anyway one was wearing a wig and looking very different (laughs) but uh, no that was it was lovely to be part of it and to just see her behavior Take twenty-three.
0: Distinct Comedy presents. Oh hello. I'm uh, I'm Julian Carp. I'm uh, I'm doing a voiceover. Oh hello. Experience a day in the life of voiceover guy. Take thirteen. I'm playing a pirate.
2: Are you sure you're in the right place?
0: Written and performed by Jonathan Kidd Take twenty-four. Aha, Splice the main brace,
1: me hearties Get on down to Captain Jacob's boat supplies. Sail is now on.
0: Get it? Oh, good, let's treat that one as a run through. Aha! Available now on the Distinct Comedy Podcast. Okay then, can we do a series of less piratical wild aha's in threes and we'll splice them on. That okay, Paul? The trials and tribulations of a life spent in voiceover.
2: Sorry, I only have two lemon with honey. I'd like my coffee. I shall scream without a coffee. Eee!
0: New and original comedy. Or softer. Aha! Well, actually, on reflection, I'm not happy with them. I like what we had, all rough and piratey. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or I
1: might have to give you a black spot. That was
0: blood out of a stone. Won't
3: use him again. Eh. So, looking back now at, at, at Coronation Street, I mean, it's, it's nearly 50 years since you first starred in it, and the actual programme itself is now going to be 60 years old in December. Mm. What is it about... The street. What is it about soap, I suppose, but what is it about the street in particular that is so enduring? Do you think?
2: Ah, that's a big one. I I think it involves people um, in their everyday lives, and they can live vicariously through the lives and loves and ups and downs of a set of people if they've watched regularly they've got to know they've probably seen these people being born on the street and uh, growing up and and then becoming married and having all the sort of terrible things happen that they they seem to have to write into the streets and, and into all these um series i don't see why they I sure, i'm sure people would watch without the huge dramas that go on you know because you, I would think, <laughs> who wants to buy a house on the street with so many murders in that area? <laughs> I just think it's such a pity. And I think, uh, thinking of the street, I don't watch much television, but just thinking of the street and uh, how it was held in such regard when I was in it, and how the, the warmth of the public was so noticeable. Um, I mean, rarely got... I, I don't think... I think of anyone who was unpleasant or said anything nasty about it, you know, and you're meeting hundreds of people, um, but it, it was just held close to people's hearts, because I think they got involved with the characters, and and yet, and yet they were distanced, so it was safe not to get too involved, but just for the time you watched it and the progress of the stories, you could be, feel you were part of it, you had a part... To Play with these people. I mean, the the familiarity that people had you meet outside, it was just like they'd known you all, you, know, you were part of their family and they'd known you all their lives. And they would hug you and kiss you. Um, it, it, well, I, I must say, depending, sometimes in different parts of the country you've got different reactions. Some, it, it was interesting to see that, that in some areas of the country people were. A little um, reticent of coming, grabbing hold of you, and squeezing you, and kissing you, and saying, "Write your name here." On and, and it was a bald head presented, or an arm, or a back, or something. <laughs> extraordinary things. You know, really familiar things that they, they feel so close, and I think that involvement is what keeps the programmes going. And I think The Street, uh, when I was in it, all the time I was in it, had this wonderful thing of comedy. I mean, it had the comedy characters. and I don't watch it regularly. Now I occasionally think I'll have a look, but uh, I don't see much to laugh at now. It's a shame.
3: I think one of the things I hope is that, you know, in the old days, a lot of the programme was more about sort of um, just general situations and dialogue and, you know, all that. And I'm hoping that one of the things that might come out of this hiatus period they've got at the moment, whereby they're going to have to go back and, and do filming, but do it with social distancing mm. and probably use less characters and things, is that we might actually get a bit of a return to that, you know, thing around around the language and around the words mm. and the
2: the dialogue mm.
3: and whatever, you know.
2: We were saying between us, you used to get scripts that had sort of non sequiturs where you'd just be talking about... Nothing important at all. Nothing to do with the plot, and uh, they could be so real and so funny. You know, a bit Alan. Ben- <laughs> it is just normal conversation that takes place without having great meaning and drama to it. And um, we noticed that happening because they had so much, so many more episodes to do. And instead of taking it more slowly and filling the gaps, of the, they got more and more storylines and so and more and more characters. And you just got confused. I mean, I, I just look, I think it was Helen, I was talking to somebody, and I said there were only about 25 people in the cast when I went in, if that. And <laughs> I think now there's probably about 50 or 60 or 70, you know, so, People have to keep track of all their lives and you know all that's happening to them.
3: just a couple of other people who were in the program for a long time I just want to ask you about and, and because they were very they were very different outside their characters than they were inside their characters. that's Jean Alexander who played Hilda Ogden what, mm. what, what, mm. what do you recall of, of, of working with Jean
2: Oh Jean was well again she was hugely professional and that was you see they, that there were so many who were true professionals who had done a lot of theatre work. And then, because they wanted people to be very real, um, that they would, would get people who had no experience or very little experience of acting. So there was that vision. But um, you knew that, well, certainly Barbara and Peter and Chris, you know, a host of Bill and uh, others, you know, were very very professional because they'd got used to the disciplines of theatre and and, uh, and they would know their lines and they would get there on time and they would work at it and all that. So um yeah Jean was one of those very strict uh, timekeeper a very strict professional she didn't like people to be doing anything that uh, you know was not not to be working hard. I think she yeah she had a great sense of of hard work. And and she was she was, she loved cats. I remember that was her great thing. <laughs> she loved cats and she, she would sort of impersonate them sometimes <laughs> pretend to be a cat. <laughs> but no, she was great. She was she was a good woman.
3: And and Hilda, of course, her character, uh w- w- would all it was always guaranteed that Hilda would manage to wind Mavis up, oh, wouldn't yes. she? Oh
2: yes, quite quite with Mavis, wasn't she? I think she just thought, "What a wet blanket this woman is." Stand up for yourself, as you know, Hilda would herself. But she, she had a great. She had this sort of. Um, she was always on the defensive, wasn't she? Because people, were, again, she was a whipping boy. She would, she would be got at by a lot of the others, and um, and but she could answer back, and she certainly could put um, Stan in his place, and, and yet uh, again, and you know, anybody. Take Stan on, and she was on Stan's side. No heart, not a hearse. Um No, and she was she was smashing. Yeah, I, I admired her tremendously. Very different from the character, of course, because she was always very well dressed and uh, were well spoken and, and very private.
3: Obviously, when you come to a program like Coronation Street, and you maybe live somewhere else, you have to try and find somewhere to stay or live or whatever. Did you you, you got to know Helen Worth quite well, didn't you?
2: Well, yes, we became great friends, and um and I'm old enough to be her mum, so maybe she's looked something like that. And, um, yes, I still see Helen, and we've um, just had a birthday card from her today, actually. And, uh, she, yes, and so, you know, at this length of time, you live through each other's real lives, as well as the lives you're having on the, on the programme. Because you become friends, and and something that is, I think what I loved so much about the theatre, not only the parts and and discovering them and you know working on them, was also the team spirit that you get. It's uh, it's it's a wonderful thing, and I mean many people get it. I think sports people get it a lot, but certainly in in the theatre you do. Um, and so yes, so I see I see um, Helen. She sort of pops up down down here sometimes. and, we uh, And we talk. Um, she came to <laughs> have digs with me. She came to live in the house. And I had my mother and one of my sons there. And it was a big old house. And we decorated it together from top to bottom.
3: And, and somebody we can't not mention, really, because he's been there right from the very start, um, is still there now, is, of course, Bill Roach.
2: When I first went into the programme, as I say, I was very nervous of of talking to people, and the very last person I plucked up courage to talk to was Bill Roach, and um, he was doing a a, a really serious study of astrology at the time, and I was sort of vaguely interested in it, not huge, and and he was doing um, the charts for some of the casts, and I think he was taking some exams. And he he wanted to have one or two more. So I plucked up the courage to say, would he like to do mine? And I mean, he knew nothing about me at all. Because I hadn't been in the program very long by then. And anyway, we knew he he wasn't somebody I had big chats with. And I think I was a bit in awe of him. And he did it. And I came across it last week only. And it is so extraordinary. You know, and I remember at the time thinking, "Gosh, this is extraordinary." And he he worked it out. It was all very scientifically worked out, Um, and mathematically. I'm not sure about scientifically. And he said in within the first page, he said there seems to be no influence of a father in your life. Maybe he was away a lot, or maybe. Um, he wasn't, you know, talkative to you. Or I don't understand this. Maybe you would explain it to me. And I hadn't really reeled you know, re- back at that because my father died three weeks before I was born. So I never knew him. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously something made him write that, but he had no idea about my background or anything. I thought I'd almost write to Bill and say, I've just fished it out for the last 50 years. <laughs> <You know. laughs> and uh, chat to him about it. Because I, think he, I mean, he, he stopped doing it, I think, soon after that. But it had been an interest he'd had.
3: Now, um, Mavis yes. Um, yes. left the street and went to live up in Cumbria somewhere, I think. Is that the idea? Yes,
2: another so- name. It's a lovely little spot. Cartmel. Cartmel, yeah, that's, well, that's a priory there, isn't there, or something like that.
3: And yeah. occasionally, yeah. Rita goes off to see her. Yes.
2: <laughs> I got letters from Cartmel, And one was a gentleman who said, I wonder if you'd like to come and be my housekeeper. Mavis. <laughs> and I, and he, he ran a pub. And he thought Mavis might like to go and be his housekeeper. I mean, those letters—something you have to treat very carefully, because you don't know if he was tongue in cheek, or if he really thought, you know, that Mavis was a real person and she really was going to be his housekeeper. And more alarming was one from the tourist office, who sent me all information about if I was going to run a B and B. This is how you do it. Now I'm sure they must have tongue in cheek. But there is all this business now, how they'd welcome me and da 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 da. So I don't know how, at her age, she's managing to run a b and <laughs> Maybe she's given that up and she'll only have Rita and friends up there.
3: So I mean, all these years later, obviously, you know, you, you, your character hasn't been killed off. If you, they said to you, "Oh, Rita's tripping up to the, you know, up to Cumbria or whatever, and uh, or Cartmel... And, you know, we'd like to do a couple of little scenes with you and uh, Barbara Knox. Would you go for it?
2: No. No, I said when I was leaving, I would never go back. or would do anything. No. I don't. I mean, I'm just saying no, uh, how I feel at the moment. <laughs> I, and I've always said I wouldn't. You know, they asked me back two, two or three times. But I've always said no, because um, I feel I've packed Mavis away in a box now. You know, I don't, I don't think I'd know how to do her anyway. I don't. I'd have have to recall. Maybe a good script might make me realise how I played the part. Um, She'd be
3: somewhere lurking somewhere, not being able to make a decision about something, I'm sure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) About whether she'd come back and do it. (laughs) Obviously, I've just said that. I never thought I'd want to give up acting, ever, just as I thought I'd never want to stop driving. But, uh, you know, one changes, and and there's time when I I thought, no, I don't want to be one of those actors who goes on forever regardless and has to be fetched and carried and given chairs to sit on all the time and, you know, made as a a special case. It just doesn't appeal to me like that. You know, if I can't do it as I've always done it, I I wouldn't want to go on. So I left, and I, um, I didn't miss it at all because, you know, I'd made the decision and I haven't wanted to do anything else that's cropped up since. I don't know what would have tempted me.
3: <laughs> what if Alan Bennett offered you one of his monologues?
2: No. Um, no. I mean, look, they, they, I don't think he's doing the um, uh, one with Thora Heard. I, I don't think they're doing that. And it, it would have, have been, been a lovely, lovely thing to have done in the past. But I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe because they're so well written, they would be easy to learn. But they are a long time will not they they go on you know it's a heck of a lot of
3: lines to learn
2: and yes it would be wonderful because um, you know you just take over you wouldn't have it wouldn't be difficult because you know one's known that sort of person
3: so now years on I guess when you look back at Coronation Street you look back at it with tremendous affection
2: so lucky lucky to have been in it because it came into my life at a time when I I needed something like that to happen. And um, people were so gorgeous and I just made so many friends. Um, So it's wonderful that they can keep writing for it and and keep the interest going. Long may it last. 60 years years. terrific achievement, isn't it? It is indeed Thelma
3: Barlow. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. It's been absolutely lovely. Thank you.
2: That, thank you. And happy
3: birthday.
2: Oh, many thanks, many thanks. Uh, it's not a uh, couple of days. Um, that, thank you.
1: Coming up on Distinct Nostalgia this Friday, as Alan Bennett's Talking Heads is revived by the BBC in the lockdown, we'll be staging a reunion of actors from one of Alan's most celebrated works, The History Boys.
0: We all got to choose our first names, didn't we? Yes, we did. There was a day when Nick sort of went in the middle of the room and we were sort of just going round everyone and we sort of... It was like a group effort. It wasn't that we individually got to choose, but we sort of went round and sort of decided what everyone's first name was, whether you liked it or not. I don't think I would have chosen Donald.
1: I definitely didn't choose David. I don't think I even know a David.
0: I think James Corden probably named most of us. Well, do do you guys remember when we were told to go away and write, like, a character bio or something? And I remember I was a very keen bean then, and I'd spent days and nights drafting this biography and came in and, and then told the room... And I remember James hadn't prepared anything but kind of improvised his whole biography. Do you remember? And it was kind of genius. It was this kind of improvisation about his character and it was just brilliant. I was so envious because I'd spent so long preparing mine and he just did his off the cuff. Pretty incredible.
1: That's all to come on Distinct
0: Nostalgia. Bye for now. Distinct Nostalgia now offers three new programs each and every week. Wednesday is now Distinct Nostalgia Soap Day. Loads of retro soap chat with the actual stars who were there. The regular Distinct Nostalgia program moves to Fridays, with a variety of shows celebrating all our TV and film yesterdays. And then we've got the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month Quiz every Sunday from 11. Distinct Nostalgia. Three times a week, plus a treasure trove of programmes to listen to any time at distinctnostalgia.com. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Toughers, there you are, toughers. Hello? Like, how do you become a world-class cricketer? Yeah,
3: I don't really know. (laughs) Hello, hello!
0: Russell T. Davis, how are hey, you? Hey, hello,
3: darling. I'm in
0: my airing cupboard. We
3: never saw this coming. The lunacy of what's going on. Dear God,
0: man. A brand new podcast series, where Queer as folk star Craig Kelly chats frankly and honestly with celebrity guests about themselves, their lives, and how they're coping in lockdown. I'm phoning the legend. There's Chris Marshall. Hello, mate. Marshall, man. What would you rather eat? A worm sandwich or a slug smoothie? It's got to be a worm sandwich, mate. The protein. <laughs> Kelly's Heroes. Knock Listen now at craigkelly.co.uk.
2: Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.